John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 20 Entry 1404.EC0410 Certificate number 33008 Vesna Vulevich Vesna Bulevich We're going back a little bit. This, this was the uh, all the way back over a year ago. She's the Serbian uh, flight attendant. Who, Yugoslavian. It's true. Ethnically Serbian at the time, nationally Yugoslavian, because the plane crash was in the 70s, maybe. Um, She survived. She fell miles through the air without a parachute Mm. onto, what, a snowy mountainside? Snowy mountainside. Somehow survived. And uh, we received a note from Elaine this week asking if we had seen the New York Times uh, deep dive, as it were, into Julianne Diller. Do you, did you read the thing about Julianne Kepke Diller? I didn't. Uh, I saw notice of it on social media. She also survived a two-mile parachuteless Is this the one in, the, in South America? Yes. Yeah, right. It's the deadliest lightning strike-related aviation disaster in history. 50 years ago this year, Lansa Flight 508. Her parents were biology researchers, uh, zoologists in the uh, the Peruvian Amazon, the Peruvian rainforest. They worked at a, a research station called Penguana, and they took this little puddle jumper plane, turboprop plane, Lockheed mm-hmm. L-188A, if, for our more Roderician listeners, and flew right into a thunderstorm and quickly got struck by lightning, they nosedive, and suddenly she's outside the plane. Like, the plane is plummeting, I guess, so fast it breaks apart. Wow. And she's still strapped to her three-seater, uh, but outside the plane. And then she comes to the next morning, upside down, still in her three-seat row, strapped in. On the ground. Yeah, in the jungle. Apparently, the foliage has broken her fall enough that she survived. The the uh, L-188... Is um is one of these sort of mid-sized prop planes. It's bigger than a DC three. It's like the size of a DC four. It's yeah. got four engines. If this is the deadliest plane crash of its kind, there must have been fifty to one hundred people on this thing. Yeah, it's a it's like a it, it's not a it's not a what we would call a puddle jumper, but yeah, it's got sixty to seventy passengers. It's bigger than I thought. She um 
All she remembers about the fall is just seeing the desert trees below, like looking like broccoli, she said. And then she wakes up and she's a teenager upside down in the middle of the trackless jungle. Both parents dead. Realizing that both her parents, pretty quickly that both her parents have been killed. She also has a broken collarbone and a sprained knee. And, hey, uh, who hasn't had one of those? Those a, are just rugby injuries. And a black eye. Exactly. She's she's bizarrely uh, unhurt. And she spends about a, a day there, you know, in the pouring rain, listening to birds and frogs, and then realizes no one is coming. It's the wet season, so there's no fruit, and there's she can't even make a fire because everything's wet. So she can, she drinks from the river, and... Immediately getting giardia, <laughs> compounding her problems. The least of her problems. <laughs> Uh, she ends up a few days later just kind of wa- following the river and uh, luckily wandering into um, uh, a village. Let me just uh, point out that if you are ever lost in the Peruvian rainforest, follow the river down. This is the this is the secret. Find a river, follow it down. That's what she did. The creek became the stream, became a river, and then she finds forest workers who are... Um, Forest workers, which is a euphemism for yeah, I don't know lumberjacks. What does that mean? Slash and burn. Yeah, yeah. they fed her cassava, and uh, her wounds now have, um, in a detail, I wish the Times had left out maggots protruding like asparagus tips. Hmm. So they from fall- what? Uh, her broken collarbone. I, she also has uh, gashes and oh, uh, the knee and uh, Brody. Grody. They pour, all they have is they don't have any medicine. They have gasoline, which they pour on to try to disinfect the wound. Sure, yeah, sounds like it would work. And uh, the interesting thing about the story is that you know she survived a two mile fall, which is fascinating enough. But she also grew up to become a uh, a biologist, a zoologist herself. I think maybe uh, an insect specialist. And she now routinely goes back to Panguana, the same place where her parents were uh, working. And, uh, you know, she just feels a very close connection to the, to the area. Wow. So, so even though she's German, she still spends part of the year in Peru continuing her parents' research. And she kind of sees it as, um, you know, trying to protect the Peruvian rainforest from a, a tipping point of no return. You know, what if it, what right. if it just becomes savanna in our lifetimes? Right. The lungs of the earth. Exactly. I, I wonder, you know, gasoline poisoning can kill. I wonder if that's true if you put gasoline on a on a wound. Well, it'll kill the maggot. You're afraid it'll kill the human. Well, yeah, get inside your bloodstream somehow. And, and this would have been leaded gasoline, right? Because it was 1971. Right. <laughs> in Peru. So this is a public service announcement. Yeah. If you have maggots protruding like asparagus tips from your body, seek medical attention. Don't, don't seek a... a Texaco station. Well, you know, maggots are uh, are actually very good at uh, clearing dead tissue away. Um, they, they still use it now, right, yeah, for certain do. kinds of scar treatment? They do, yeah. I don't know if I would request that from my doctor. Entry 554.EX2320. Certificate number 25639. The Guardian Angel. I assume you know why this is in the addenda today. Yeah, it turns out uh, turns out our man, the man with the plan, is running for mayor of New York City. Curtis uh, Sliwa, is yeah. that how we're saying it? Yeah. You know, he be after founding the Guardian Angels, this kind of neighborhood quasi vigilante type group with its odd red berets. Uh, he became what a radio jock, yeah, just general sort of guy. You know, man about town. He's running as a Republican. 
He is, and uh, we're recording this on the Wednesday after the election, and it appears he has won the Republican primary. Oh, wow. Well, you know, the Republican candidate for mayor of New York City is always right. really in contention for the job, uh, getting between zero and 15% of the vote. Giuliani Dinkins was close enough to inspire a Seinfeld episode, but in recent years, yeah, there's... Uh, there's really not much danger of our man becoming the mayor of New York City. No. Especially because the um, the Republican primary was kind of a clown show. It was him and a, a businessman named Fernando Mateo. And I guess, you know, just because no serious candidate thinks they can win, it kind of turned into a, you know, the debate was just a, a crazy circus act. Yeah. So it didn't, did not bring a lot of um, prestige on the state or national Republican Party, which kind of stayed out of it. But the head of the Guardian Angels, now uh, now back in the news, what, 30, 40 years after, 40, his, yeah. after his, he was a mid-80s phenomenon, right? Can you imagine the mayor of New York, like, wearing a red beret and a t-shirt everywhere he went? I mean... Which he's continuing to do so. I mean, he's often he's got the red beret and um, now a red COVID mask. Right. And a, you know, and a kind of a red Trumpian tie. Right. Uh, out on his campaign stops. Well, if AOC and the squad had their way, all American government leaders would have red berets on. <laughs> well, the Democrat in the race, Eric Adams, is like former, what, BK borough president. We right. say BK on this now. BK. And, uh, and like, what, a cop, right? Like, he's a former right. police But he's a poli- chief. But he's a police that's, that's running as a kind of police reform candidate. Yeah, but like I think neither neither of them are a progressive's dream for for New York City for progressive New York City. Right? Did you read? Although the, De Blasio wasn't exactly like he may have been a progressive's nor, dream on on paper. Nor Bloomberg. <laughs> did you read the uh, Did you read the interview yesterday where uh, Eric Adams was asked what his favorite concert was? No. What did he say? What do you the think, Eagles? What is the worst possible answer to that question? Do you think? What's your favorite concert? What's the best concert you were ever at? Uh, it's got to be Kenny G, right? Isn't that the one that everybody would would scoff the hardest at? His answer, bizarrely, was the concert at which the lighting rig fell on Curtis Mayfield, paralyzing him. How can that possibly be your Wh- favorite? Why concert? would you say that running for office? That's the worst. I mean, I, it was probably a great concert until the lighting. Well, well that's rig the problem. Fell. The, the account I read said that you know, in his his answer is like you know, it was a tragedy that the lighting rig fell on on Curtis. But man, what an amazing show up to that point. Right. Except that then the article goes on to say. Accounts of the time say that the lighting rig fell on Curtis Mayfield before he even took the stage. Uh, So it's unclear which part of the concert uh, Eric Adams could have been referring to. The opener, because his brother-in-law was in the the band, the opening band. Is that enough to get you to vote for... uh for our guardian angel raccoon tail friend? Nope, I don't believe so. I believe I would find another one of the 14 people running for mayor in New York City to vote for. It's ranked choice voting in the primary, but um, yeah, it's, I think in the in the general, you got to pick a name. Superfly. Entry 258.JE4606. Certificate number 36689. Konkordsky. The Russian faster than sound, supposedly, commercial jet asterisk (laughs) with, um, yeah, with some, you know, which I would not fly on. Uh, We got a a tourism tip from a listener named Andrew, who uh, now that travel is back, recommends the next time you're in Germany, and maybe some of you are in Germany right now, check out for sure some are. 
check out uh, either the Technic Museum Technique. in Technique Museum in Sinsheim, about an hour, I think, south of Frankfurt, he says, mm-hmm. uh, or in your time period, the ruins thereof, which has both on the roof has a Concorde and next to it, a Tupolev 144. Is that what the Concordski was? Oh. Uh and you can just, you know, I don't know if you can, they're both kind of at an angle as if launching. So I'm not sure if you can tour them, but they are a very eye-popping uh, part of the museum. And the Tupolev is just huge. I, I guess I didn't understand from the entry how much bigger it is than the Con- It looks like it's at least twice as long as a Concorde. Uh, was it bigger? Yes. Um, that was part of its, um, part of its, it was one of its selling points, right? Um, you well, know, so the Russians can do everything better, bigger and better. The Soviets are bigger than us anyway. They, they, are they had big, bulky, big, bulky men and women in their in their babushkas on that thing. So why would uh, why would these airplanes be in uh, the Black Forest or whatever? Why? why what, what are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing just outside Frankfurt in this place? I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were imported. I mean, I guess it's. I guess it's like the. Um, and probably that isn't as far south as the Black Forest, so please don't no. don't write me. You're going to get notes. Um, but I, you know, there's that there's that museum in Oregon that's got the gray goose, not the gray goose, the, but out uh, out towards out toward um, just just it's past Beaverton. What's yeah, the name of that? Gresham or something? Lake Oswego? No, that's the other no, way. That's the other way. Uh, what uh, is that suburb it's, called? It's up there by, by where they make the wine. Um. It's not Gresham. McMinnville. McMinnville, of course. There we go. The Spruce uh, Goose. So I guess there are airplanes just sort of sprinkled around. You know, here at the Boeing Museum, we tried to get a, one of the space shuttles, and they wouldn't give us one. We got conned. Yeah, they gave us the trainer. There was some kind of, uh, there was shenanigans, I guess, by their by their announced metrics. The Space Museum, the Air and Space Museum here should have got one, and... We didn't. Right, Patterson got one instead. But I'm pretty sure that I've seen a space shuttle sitting on a on a loading dock outside of Fort Lauderdale. And I don't know what it's doing there. It's just, just sitting there. Yeah, it's a it's a full on space shuttle just sitting on sitting on the side of the road. Let's go and get it's it. like, what the heck are you doing? Is there a sign by it that says free? I don't know. I, it seems like it's got a chain link fence around it. But uh, we do have JFK's Air Force One, which is has seen better days. Yeah, but it's not the actual one. It's the it's one that got used, but like Nixon was on it. It's not the one that brought his body back from Dallas. That's what you want, the Dallas one. I mean, which one is the which one is the JFK one? The one that think, he rode in. Yeah, you want him alive, not dead. That's what I think. Hmm. All right, but the, the but the one that he died, the one that brought his body back, was the one that Johnson was inaugurated right. aboard. Right, that is historic. That's a pretty good one. Andrew also corrects us for for every time we said the Concorde. Apparently, this is like the Ukraine. They just want you to say, "I flew on Concorde. I took Concorde to Paris." I asked Chef if he wanted more, <laughs> uh, if he wanted a sousson of sauce. To me, this seems like corporate overreach. Like try, you know, not being able to say Legos, having to say bricks from the Lego building system or whatever it is they want you to say in in, in Denmark. Yeah, no, I'm afraid the Concorde is the the way that. Here on Omnibus, we're gonna we're gonna stick to that. Are, are we not, or are you are you susceptible to this kind of bullying? Uh, yeah, it's just a guy from Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm not gonna let him tell me what definite articles to use. 
Entry 655.LK2040. Certificate number 22311. Interabang. The Interabang entry had a lot of talk of uh, uh, unusual or unconventional punctuation marks. What do you think the sound effect for Interabang is? Uh, well, there's the, you know, Shwoosh. it might have the, the, it might just be a question mark and then an exclamation point. Shwoosh. It might be the, and then the, oh, from the Victor Borger. We talked a lot there about different uh, kind of typographic ways that have been used to convey uh, sarcasm or ironic uh-huh. detachment. Remember uh-huh. the, the sark mark and, uh-huh. and so forth? I, I don't know how well you remember Rem- this. Remember my own episode? Yeah. But uh, but Phil mentioned that we did, n- uh, we did not bring up kind of the most recent addition to the typographical canon for conveying... Uh, kind of dislike of the thing you're quoting. You know, I'm not on uh, the internet anymore. I wonder so if you've I, seen this. Uh, what you, is it? Upside down you, uh, smiley face? Have you seen the, well, there is that. Yeah. I get that from my kids. Have, but have you seen alternating upper and lower case? Oh, yes. In fact, this was, John it's, Hodgman suggested that that this was maybe the most devastating of all uh, internet-like okay boomer mockery when you see someone give you your own words back to you yeah with the up and up uppercase lowercase he said that that uh, that just is total internet murder it is because it's basically the only way to uh here say something um well you know what's the dealio what's the dealio like it's the only way to convey i'll I'll repeat the thing you said in a dumb voice yeah right which is just impossible to because what are you going to say yeah what are you going to say to that? What are you going to say to that? What are you going to say to that? What are you going to say I don't sound like that. 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 It's just a no. Like, it's a genius move. I think they should do it in presidential debates. Yeah, it's pretty, it's very Trumpy. Maybe Trump did it. Maybe oh, Trump did it. I bet, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did, but. That's but why he it, won. But it is, um, I mean, in the first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell is that? But then uh, I saw it again and again, and it was like, oh, oh. Ouch! I think it, it often. I think it started out accompanying the meme of the uh, kind of the off-model, off-brand SpongeBob. Oh, I didn't have, see. Have, it. You, have you not seen that? No, but I feel like it is SpongeBobian. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, it is. It, it's really just perfect. It's not quite the same as the Sark Mark because you would never use it for your own ironically meant observation. No, you would just use it to say the thing I'm quoting. I I uh, I hate. Although maybe like on fleek. Uh, there's a way of like a boomer re-envisioning it where you do use it to indicate should like we, your own snark. Should we reclaim that for, for yeah, boomers? That's right. that's right. Steal it back. I mean, you could definitely have different alternating patterns of upper and lower to convey tone. You know, two upper and a lower, like Morse code, two upper and a lower, two upper and a lower. That's, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm doing finger, I'm doing air quotes. I mean, you, we already do. Like a half capitalized word to to uh, like really exaggerate the emphasis if you were trying to make a word. You know, there are a lot of different ways you can emphasize the syllables to change the meaning to to to, to make it inquisitive or whatever. And we do do that. Sure. Uh, is that a literary? Is that does the New York Times style guide allow for that, or is that just a uh, just an email? evolution are you talking about like initial capitals on a word or no if you say like um in terabang oh, and, you, and have you put the, the whole thing in caps no you just put the terabang part in oh, caps the, 
and the in is lowercase. I see, like the, the emphasized syllable of the word. Right. Instead of saying interabang, in yeah. order to communicate the syllable is emphasized, you, you uppercase it. No, I don't think you will ever see that in the a... Style guide doesn't allow it. I mean, you never see it in a novel, and you probably never see it in a even in a comic essay, unless it was by Lindy West. I think she likes that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I like that kind of thing in emails, but it's always to convey that I'm... Um, you know, it's like whimsically... And I do, Sub-literary. and you do sometimes get complaints. Even if you will emphasize a word or a syllable like that, you'll get, "Hey, stop shouting!" You know, it's so it's so rude to cap to all caps anything on my screen. Do you all caps words that you're that you just want to emphasize? Not that you're shouting, but you're just like, "We need we need to be there at five. Mm, yeah, maybe in a text or in a funny in a funny social media thing. Not not in an email or anything. Do that's, you feel exclamation point? Uh, ex, uh, Escalation? Exclamation escalation? Yeah, I like them. You use them to, yeah. to communicate that you're happy and that this is a lighthearted conversation. I'll use them in my books even, and you know, sometimes I have to get dragged back. Yeah. I, I think they're great. I, hey, I like, I'll see you in five, I like, exclamation point. I notice it when I end up using it in three or four sentences in a row. Yeah, me and too. Then, and then I'll still, I still won't mind. No, it, I just, walk it back. I always take one exclamation point away, somewhere in the middle, where I realize that one of those sentences is just informational yeah. And I'm communicating my joy at this text exchange on either side with exclamation points. The joy will be greater if you take the break in the middle and then let exactly. it crescendo then again. You come back. There's the thing where you do all lowercase, and that's kind of Sark Mark adjacent because you're conveying a certain kind of slacker, slacker ironic detachment. And I'll sometimes to, I'll go to the point of like, you know, you're phone will auto-capitalize stuff, and I'll be like, nope, not the vibe I'm going for. I'll go back and make it be all lowercase. When I was in a relationship with a very submissive uh, girl, she never capitalized any words when she communicated with me. Not even a, I or God? No, as a way of, of expressing her submissiveness. It was all, uh, you know, it's all part of the weird sex games. Uh, I didn't know that extended to topography. Yeah, for sure. For, because she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't even assert herself enough to capitalize her pronouns. And then did you have to... Um, did and you that, have to reply in all uppercase to be domineering? No, I just use regular pronunciation or re- regular. <laughs> you're allowed to. <laughs> you're allowed to be a normal human. Yeah, I just wrote as a normal, but but all of a sudden my capital letters, my capital I, really had a new meaning because I was like that was the big. big it sounds big like we need to do here. a hanky code That's type show where we see exactly what the what the hidden uh, sexual undercurrent is of every single punctuation mark. And what I noticed was when we would have a disagreement when she was feeling. Um, when she wanted to express confidence to me, she would use capitals, and then all of a sudden I was – she would capitalize her I, and I knew it was a signal. I knew that a capital I was some kind of like – was some sort of punch, and that she had forgiven me when she went back to using lowercase i. I see. So it was it, it was clear that she – You see correct spelling and usage as an attack. She was, she was super conscious of whether or not she used capital letters. And this was not a thing I ever – it never would have occurred to me. But now I watch people's, uh, people's punctuation very carefully to see if it's if, – if some kind of – If they're secretly mo- coming on to you? Yeah, if it was a millennial or Generation Z person that I was texting with, I would – you know, no, there is nothing that's innocent anymore. Everything is loaded. They're too young for you anyway. Well, but it doesn't mean I can't communicate with them. Entry 861.mk0640. Certificate number 18999. Officials General. I think we could have done a whole addenda show just on 
the replies to this show. Yeah. Which was about what which was about what? About how you how postpositional adjectives work. What could be more controversial than that? Yeah, it's a it's a, some Norman conquest issue that uh that reappears in our daily life and now all of these Normans are going to have things to say about it. All the Normans that listen to this show, that's like that is such a good uh a good substitute for nerd. Just call people Normans. Wow, why don't we do that? Christopher actually sent us an email where the subject line was, those darned Normans. See, there we go, Christopher, you and I. Capital T, capital D, capital N. Uh, he wanted to volunteer the uh, the observation. Because we talked about how um, postpositional adjectives are often used in cuisine, taco supreme, mm-hmm. or spaghetti bolognese. Uh, and he remembered that there's a similar phenomenon that's related to the Norman-Anglo-Saxon divide after the conquest, which is even words like beef and pork. Beef. Beef. We use the uh, the French words like beef. And puerco, which we, is a Spanish word. We use mouton, which became mutton. Uh, we even used poulet, pullet. We hardly and use then, pullet anymore. But it, it gave us poultry. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we do not do what many languages do and just use the name of the animal, or, or which, we, which we do for game meat. You know, we don't have another word for eating deer meat. Well, I right. guess that's not true. We have the French word venison. Venison. <laughs> but that's the same thing. Uh, Did you ever have an experience, it was so long ago with you, but where your kids are like, what kind of meat is pork? And you're like, it's pig. Oh, I think I've told this story before, but Dylan at the county fair at, up in Monroe in the state fair wanted to know um, where on the uh, where on the pig the bacon came out. You yeah, know, as oh, a, where it came out. As if it were milk and eggs, uh, you know, a, a service that the pig provided to his happy owners. Oh, and what, what what was his reaction when you explained, I mean, Dylan's the one of your kids that will eat meat. Yeah, but at the time, he was a very sweet, impressionable young boy. And I thought I might have turned him out, on, off to meat, but it turned out his love for bacon was stronger than his love for pigs. But he stopped eating pig cheese. <laughs> yeah, no more head cheese. No more pickled pig's feet. Christopher's observation is that uh, the reason why we don't use words like cow, pig, and sheep is because it was the poor Anglo-Saxon peasants who were tending the live animals. So we still use their words for the live animals. But it was the Norman imports that were uh, eating the co- meat. cooking and serving and eating the meat. Uh, oh, how interesting. And so we say boeuf and pork and mouton, or beef, pork, and mutton, uh, for what they look like on the plate. Christopher, I am going to use this in conversation all the time. You know, we're, we're constantly talking about how English is, is um, grammatically German and vocabularically Latin, often. And this is a this is a classic. Like this is beautiful. Uh, Pork, pig, beef, cow. He speculates that maybe the reason why we don't say why we use Anglo-Saxon fish instead of uh, poisson? French poisson is because it looks too much like poison. Yeah, and I've you, always wondered that. Well, they come from different roots. Like the poison comes from the same root as potion, whereas. Poisson comes from, you know, Pisces. The, What's the word in French for poison? Get, no, that's German. The French word for poison. In German, it's gift, right? Which is also confusing. Yeah. Do you say gif or gift? 
<laughs> it's just le poisson, but with one S. Le poisson. Or you right. could say le venin, like venin. venin. Ven, or like venom. Yeah. I, I, I knew that poisson, poisson, because I took French, and that was in seventh grade, one of the one of the things that we would, you always that, learned, that we delighted in. You always do a food list. It looks yeah. like poison. And if you don't like fish, you know, they're not far off. Speaking of Germanic languages, we got a note from, I think, frequent kibitzer Jesse. You uh, called Gaelic a Germanic language. Sorry. And he Oops. is not going to let that stand. Oops. Uh, you know, obviously it's English a, it's and pre-Germanic. It is. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, um, it's a Indo-European has a different branch that split off earlier. The Goidelic languages, which gave us the Gaelic languages, Scots and Irish, and uh, as well as the Britonic, Brit, the Britonic ones, Brit, Breton and Cornfit, Cornish and Welsh. Um, but German, Germanic, they're not close enough to English to be Germanic. Germanic would be German, Dutch, Swedish, English, the other Scandinavian languages, Yiddish, Afrikaans. The funny thing is, even though Scots Gaelic is a Godelic language, modern day Scots is Germanic. Is Germanic because it's an offshoot of English. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, which I guess I had not realized. And, you know, there's, as we've said before, modern Scots often just sounds like English in a Scottish accent. So. Yeah. Did you see the, or have you seen the web series where some smarty pants, some Irish smarty pants walks around Ireland now speaking Gaelic to Irish people to see how many of them understand anything he's saying? It's a fantastic little web series. This guy is really intolerable, but. Is he, he, is he some kind of uh renovate, you know, bring back Gaelic kind of a yeah, I mean, nationalist? Within, within Ireland, there's. This, there's this movement to restore the Irish it's language. It's taught in schools now. And he's, and he's doing this somewhat um, pointedly. I, I, he, he looks too much like a young scholar to, to uh, be like overtly advancing a nationalist cause, but he certainly is, uh, is trying to hammer home a point. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, is it like jaywalking where they're all just the Jay Leno thing where they're all, everybody's just terrible at Gaelic? Yeah. Is that the joke? But he walks into a department store and he's like, I'm sorry, that's a terrible slur. Uh, but he speaks, uh, he speaks Irish. And I, and I was surprised at the number of people that kind of got what he was saying or knew enough vocabulary from school that they could say, oh, you know, he's like, I would like to buy seven water bottles and they'd, they would kind of reluctant or, or, or tentatively guide him over to the section of the store, and he's asking all these elaborate questions. And there. this probably never comes up for them because it's not really anybody's first language anymore, even in Ireland? All the way down in, in the southwest, there are still counties where people speak Irish. Learn, they learn yeah, somewhat, Irish Gaelic first. Or they, yeah, they speak it fluently to one another. It's their, it's their primary home language. Mm. Um, but there were, and then, so that sent me down a rabbit hole and I started watching videos of people speaking fluent Welsh, which, you know, it's very melodious, but then, does you know, it, I, I would say that. Does it make you want to bring it back? You're going to start speaking Welsh? No, but yeah, but it's, it's interesting to watch someone speak Gaelic who is also, you know, fluent in English. It just, I don't know. It just feels, it, it makes me glad, although I don't think there's any chance of Welsh actually returning has a living language outside of whatever, a novelty. 
Speaking of an elocution lesson. Speaking of Ireland, we also happened to mention. I think because we were talking about countries that have consuls general, and we uh, I mentioned that there are honorary consuls even in cities that don't have consulates. It might just be some mm-hmm. expat in a suburban home, like the. That Seattle has an Irish consul, but it's just some guy in Edmonds. I, I and I think I gave his name wrong. It's not o- Sean, Sean O'Connor. It's not O'Brien or whatever I said. Like somebody actually replied. Somebody was like, "Oh no, I know that guy. His name's actually such and such." He's the Irish consulate here. Uh, yeah, or consul. We got a story from Claire, who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, she qualified. Her, her mom's Irish, so she qualified for an Irish passport. And what do you do in Halifax? You go to see the Irish honorary consul and she thought it was going to be you know a, a security yeah. guarded consulate uh with an x-ray scanner and all that whatnot and it turned out that in fact the instructions to find the irish council halifax is to go to a certain local pub and ask for brian <laughs> i thought you were going to say get on the number four bus and the driver <laughs> is also the consul no it's the guy at the pub it's just an older guy who's like oh no come upstairs come upstairs and there's a big gold harp symbol on the wall and he's like uh, well you know and you know he, he can he can do all the paperwork right he, a few months later her passport came in the mail and she her point is that this is how Government services should work. Yeah. It's just be a guy with a messy desk in a pub. That's how I got into Gonzaga. I'm going to start a DMV in my basement, I think, just to try to carry on yeah, Ken's DMV. tradition. You know, there are DMVs out here in the county that are that are private enterprises. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's a thing you can get a contract to run a small DMV. Yeah, the place I went in Ballard once to get my some, some kind of a license did seem like it was some guy's business. I showed up at one of these places because I because I bought this suburban in New Hampshire, and I drove it out here, and I was trying to get, and it wasn't there wasn't a license, um, because in New Hampshire, the law is that the license plate stays with you. Huh. You get the license plate, and then you transfer it from car to car, so a car doesn't come with a license plate, which does not happen here. No, it's the opposite. The license plate stays with the car. And you wind up with old license plates for no reason. I guess New Hampshire's probably doing it right. Well, so I got here and I needed to license this truck and I had this bill of sale. I guess it's that they don't have titles on their vehicles or something. I didn't have a title. And the- They're living free. They are. And hopefully dying. But the, the, um, or hopefully dying. But the DMV out here was some privately run like family business- their 15-year-old daughter was working there, mom and pop. Can they, like, levy some hefty surcharge? Well, they said, they're, you know, the only way to get a title for this vehicle is to have the state patrol put a lien on it for five years. And eventually, if you pay a 1,000 different fees, maybe they will grant you some salvage title and give you a license plate. And then I said, I looked it up on my phone. And I said, oh, wait, um... New Hampshire doesn't issue titles for vehicles older than five years. And this is truck is from 79. And the woman like looked down at the piece of paper, looked at my phone maybe. And she was like, Oh, Oh, okay. No problem. And she handed me a license plate, (laughs) wrote it down in a spiral bound notebook. And I was like, if I hadn't looked that up, I would be, you know, if she had finalized the paperwork, I would be on a path where I still wouldn't have a license for the truck. And instead, it was like, oh, no, look at look at this thing I saw on Google. Luckily, you went to somebody with a spiral-bound notebook-based business. Yeah, right. Which, which normally in government is now just, um, you know, logging visitors to a lighthouse or something. Yeah, but in this case, actually it, it a the licensing whole system. organization. Uh, Rob 
this is kind of uh, adjacent to um, postpositional adjectives, and you're going to love this because it's related to Star Trek. Is uh, he wonders, you know, Klingons fly in spaceships called uh, called a bird of prey. Uh, he Rob just wants to know what the correct plural would be, you know, because one of the things about these postpositional adjectives is you're not supposed to say uh, it's a cert, uh, attorney generals. You're supposed to say attorneys general. So what's the plural of bird of prey? Birds of prey. Right. 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 You don't say bird of praise. No. That was Rob's question. I feel no. like I feel like any Star Trek fan worth his salt would say birds of prey. But this was, you know, this was a live issue for me in my 20s because I was serving a Latter-day Saint mission and we give away copies of the Book of Mormon to anyone who's interested. And the question became, I'm, I'm sure. How, how I'm, many of those do you carry out in the field with you? Yeah, there's a bunch back at the apartment. You probably have a couple with you during the day in your Are backpack. They, they're not in the trunk of the car because you guys walk everywhere. I got bikes. I don't even mean when I say you guys. I literally mean you guys. You don't carry them. Uh, you don't have like a bandolier. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, you have a couple in your backpack, oh, maybe. Okay. All right. uh, but if you have, you know, most people, the same number of copies of that book to own would be zero or one. There's really no reason to have two or more. And yet, if you've got, a, if you're a missionary with a stack of 20 at your apartment, you have to pluralize it. And do you say Book of Mormons? Books of Mormon. Books of Mormon. It's got to be Books of Mormon. They both sound weird enough that generally people cop out and say copies of the Book of Mormon, even though it's uh, I think books six of syllables Mormon. Longer. I mean, it's, Gide- it's Gideon Bibles. Gideon, Gideon Bibles. They're not Gideon. Bibles Gideon? <laughs> Gideon's Bibles. But uh, it's Books of Mormon. Sure, I would say Books of Mormon. Do you say words of mouth? What are some other things you would pluralize? Uh, there's a... Jimmy reminded us about this famous um, Onion headline, which I have always enjoyed, which is, William Sapphire orders two Whoppers Jr. <laughs> But, you know, that's not that funny because, like, in the hamburger world, you do say Carl's Jr., right? Well, yeah, but that's a but that's Car- Carl's. Oh, I see. Carl's Jr. Isn't that wrong? Carl it Jr. should be Carl Jr.'s, right? I mean, it's not uh, – Carl Jr. owns a place. It's Carl Jr.'s. Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr. implies there's two restaurants named Carl's, and this is the younger one? Or the restaurant named Carl's had a baby? Uh, Carl's Jr.? What does that even mean? <laughs> right? Come on. That's why you should live in the Hardee's part of the country where you don't have to face this. We got a lot of firsthand reports from people who have worked at or with uh, government employees with post-positional titles. One of the things, we we went down some rabbit hole of learning which uh, kind of civil service ranks are equivalent to... Oh, to generals or... Yeah, to, to actual military ranks. Right. And... Uh, did people write in with corrections or did they just want to brag about the fact that they are technically a major in the uh, army? Both. Michael, uh, I think we said it was mostly like a protocol issue for, you know, who gets seated first or who's which side of the, the receiving line at a embassy function or something. But Michael has actually been a GS-15 civilian with the Army Criminal Investigation Command, which is civilian, but that made him the equivalent of a full colonel. And so he was supervising uh, real uniformed, army people. uniformed army officers of ranks uh, up to but not including colonel, which would be pretty much the whole army. Uh, and 
he was he still had, I guess, that uh, he was still a GS-15 when he was deployed in Iraq for a year. And that actually gave him the same VIP privileges of a colonel. Like he got single occupancy housing, you know, which is uh-huh. just a, basically a big, a, it's a containerized right. housing unit. I guess but one just, you don't have to share. Exactly. Have a curtain across the middle. Exactly. It says here that a GS-15 has to have a PhD and uh, they make between 110 and 143 thousand dollars a year i mean that's what the gs rankings are is basically it's a pay scale, pay scale. actually a hundred and ten thousand four hundred and sixty dollars to one hundred and forty three thousand five hundred and ninety eight dollars that's where you top out well michael is a, a lobster level patreon supporter oh, so, so he's so, making the big dollars so he's, he's doing okay but you have to have a phd or what is the equivalent of a phd phd or equivalent <laughs> There's well, no I mean, equivalent. my field is uh, is uh, Twin Peaks, well, and, and G- I feel that uh, having read all the news groups for many years is the PhD equivalent. A GS-15 is the highest of the GS scale, and then above that, I guess you are what? I don't know what you are. You're Lieutenant General. I guess he later uh, had a similar civilian rank with uh, in Energy Department and Homeland Security Um positions. He was in the senior executive service, which means his equivalent rank was brigadier general. Awesome. And and a lot of these this people This is like Josh Lyman in the in the <laughs> West Wing. A lot of these people point out that when you are interacting with DOD agencies, which is not uncommon in some of these jobs, this stuff is a live issue because they're going to treat you like a you know, Fulbert colonel or a brigadier general or whatever it is. How do if you are a GS-15 and you are walking on to base, like, do you have a lapel pin or something? I mean, that's the thing about rank. You oh, wear yeah. it on your sleeve. Do you get saluted, I guess, if you're if you're colonel? So. Really? If, even if you're equivalent? If you're just wearing... You get the, you get a general's container house, but you don't get his salutes? If you're wearing, a, a, a like, cargo shorts and a polo shirt, I don't think they know to salute you. Well, I guess you don't actually... You wouldn't... Are you supposed to salute officers out of uniform anyway? No, no. right? Okay. Well, you that, salute the uniform, not the man, Ken. That's what I've heard. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that would solve this problem yeah, because right. presumably our uh, our listener Michael is not uniformed. He also wanted to. We we we. I guess I must have mentioned briefly. Oh, hold on. There are ten steps to a GS fifteen. Oh, I see. So the so pay, we would need to know what the pay kind grade of is like. GS fifteen step one makes one hundred and ten thousand four hundred and sixty dollars. So yeah, if they're if two GS fifteens meet coming through the rye, you I gotta, guess they got. What step are you? Yeah, what step are you? Uh, we mentioned the various inspectors general mm-hmm. that different government agencies have, but maybe I understated how many there are. Uh, he pointed out that he he frames this as a correction, but I don't know what we did wrong that he's correcting. That many of the inspectors general of these different agencies and social organization are actually presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. He says there are fully 74 Senate confirmable inspectors general in the U S government. The system uh, is such that they act independently of the agency heads and act to the president. So they're kind of a watchdog in all these agencies. And this was actually in the headlines during the Trump years when um, many of the, you know, including cabinet level offices, uh, cabinet level officers were being investigated by their own inspector generals and inspectors general. And as a result, forced them out. I, uh, I just looked up some of the, uh, available GS 15 jobs that they're currently advertising. Um, you know, like 
submit applications. Okay. A lot of them are attorneys. <laughs> so there's a PhD an, or equivalent. There's an assistant. A JD is an equivalent <laughs> to a PhD, huh? There's an assistant U.S. attorney job in uh, in D.C. And then a lot of supervisory physician physicians on Indian reservations. Um, here's one in the Crow Agency in Montana, and somehow this pay scale goes up to three hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars. That goes pretty far in Montana. So I guess a I guess a, a a uh, medical doctor equals a PhD. That seems reasonable. The secretary of the Navy is looking for an attorney. Are um, you, you going to apply to some of these? The FBI is looking for an attorney. A lot of attorneys. Where are you? Is this just on Monster? No, this is federalpay.org. Um, yeah. We heard from two different people who work for the GAO because I made, I guess, what is a very, uh, common and disliked faux pas of referring to them by their previous acronym, uh, the Government Accounting Office. Oh, they and are now n- it is what? I think I, maybe I said the General Accounting Office, which was the old name. They are now the Government Accountability Office. Oh, boo. They're no longer just counting beans, John. Boo, boo, boo. They actually are doing, you know, not just financial audits, but performance audits of different government programs and and uh, providing Congress and other agencies with metrics of who's meeting their objectives and who isn't. So yeah, I, know, I apologize for using the out-of-date expansion for GAO. There's been a lot of this recently. You know, the, you, used to, you used to abbreviate Lieutenant Colonel as LT, capital C-O-L, yeah. Lieutenant Colonel. Sure. That's and, what it still is in crosswords. Well, now it's, at least in the U.S. Army, L, capital, all caps, LTC. And I was writing a lieutenant colonel. This makes you sound like a financial services company. Yeah, LTC. I was writing a lieutenant colonel not very long ago, and I wrote LT, capital C-O-L, and he thanked me for using the old uh, abbreviation. They hate the the news. He was like, LTC sucks so hard, I really appreciate you. And I was like, I didn't even know that that was a thing because, you know, I address army officers by their NATO ranks. Uh, so he would be an OF4. Of our two GAO correspondents who were offended by my um, screwing up the acronym, uh, Daniel points out, interestingly, that the GAO is 100 years old this year. I assume you're, hey, I assume you're celebrating hey, that. I already did. I did uh, in March. <laughs> he also says that the current, the, the controller general. Comptroller general. Well, that's that's what we heard about from David, who is also in the GAO. And we wondered whether or not the Comptroller General pronounces it Comptroller or Controller. And David can confirm that the Comptroller General of the U.S. is the Comptroller with the hard MP. Yay. Even though— We were right all along. But the dictionary still prefers Controller, you know, if you look up that word, because it comes from the French. Controller. But it is is weird for MPT to be pronounced N in English, and so it's kind of morphed into uh, Comptroller. What do they call the Master Control Program? (laughs) Uh, David, even though he didn't ask, tells me that the current Comptroller General is uh, Gene Dodaro. Oh. Good to know. Congratulations, Comptroller General Dodaro. I asked David if he could, if he thinks he could get Gene Dodaro to listen to our show, if if he told him that it had more Comptroller General content than most podcasts. It, are you certain that uh, Gene uses a masculine pronoun? Uh, it's G-E-N-E. Oh, I see. So I believe... So it's not yes. Jean. David, because he works in the GAO, is also interested in our... our uh, Sidebar about military ranks and civilian 
counterparts. He used to work in the VA, even though he's a civilian. And as a result, like our uh, other correspondent Michael told us, if you're working with DOD folks, they will use your equivalent rank. So he was always being called Lieutenant Jones or Commander Jones, despite the fact that he had never been in the uniform service in his life. And the veteran, the VA hospital is a Navy hospital. Mm. Otherwise they wouldn't have said commander. Oh yeah, that's a good point. So, and Lieutenant would have been the right. equivalent of a, of an army captain. He says it Lieutenant. now, he says it now helps him understand the appeal of honorary Kentucky colonels yes. like ourselves, because it was kind of a rush just to be called Lieutenant, even though you've, uh, you know, Never had any valor to steal. Now, did you formalize your Kentucky colonelship, or did you put that in a stack of papers along with all your other? What honorary? was I supposed to do? Did well, I have to? Did I have to register? Yeah, you activate it by uh, uh, by donating some money to the Kentucky Colonel organization to be used on behalf of sick kids. And did you do that? I did. Are you kidding? I didn't wait all this time to be a Kentucky Colonel just to let a fifty dollar donation stand in my. Is way. it because you love the sick kids, or I do love sick kids? I do love. You don't want them to stay sick. You're no. not some Munchausen dad. No, no, not at all. I'm not poisoning kids just <laughs> to keep them sick. They're not going to start calling you Munchausen dad, are they? No, I am. Uh, I am supporting the sick kids, but I. But they also sent me uh, several medals. The Kentucky Colonels gave me a lapel. Pin medal. Is this, is this because a, you sent in the fifty bucks? Yeah, and another medal and some kind of. Uh, well, I didn't know there were going to be medals. Some, I'll do it too. Uh, yeah, and a certificate. And I'm a, kind of afraid all this stuff is going to cost most of my fifty dollar donation. That really a very small amount is actually getting to the to St. Jude's or whatever. Well, you know, I did. Yeah, I I did want the medals. So um, was there a box where you could check? Please don't send me the medals. I don't think so. But they, but you could write them a personal letter and say, hey, keep the medals. Keep the medals. But I think I've seen your trophy chest. Which is all which of your is my chest covered with <laughs> no all of your like keys to the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin that are just interspersed with the uh, Lego Saturn Five rockets and and uh, whatever your s- picture of your Simpsons character crossword puzzle tournament trophies yeah I, I do got have all some, that stuff on the shelf I do have some weird trophies so put your Kentucky Colonel certificate up there with those I'm gonna do it you know we we gave to the zoo last year and there was a box you could check that said no 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 don't send me the crap just use this on the animals and I very virtuously yeah. checked that box and then earlier this year I tried to go to the take my kids to the zoo and they're like your membership memberships expired and, and I said, had to, no, it's not. I had to go to the desk and buy a membership, and I was like cursing past me for that moment of of beneficence. So when you said, "Don't send me the crap," they also didn't put your name down. Well, I think part of the thing you I was saying no to was uh, was a super deluxe zoo membership. Oh, I see. No, no, no. no. Please, please don't bother. No, no, just, no. just give the animals some uh, some delicious melons or other gourds to play with. Yeah, don't engrave my name in stone at the uh, on your donor wall. But then I hated it. You know, in an attempt to get uh, Comptroller General Dodaro to listen to the show, let me also note that Daniel Daniel points out a, a fun fact about Comptroller General Dodaro, and in fact, all Comptrollers General of the United States. They are appointed to a 15-year term, which is the longest term of any Whoa. Senate-confirmed position in U.S. government. Whoa, 15 years. So nice job, Gene. What a good job that'll be. Yeah, like you could have, that could be three, four presidents. Right? Yeah. If you do it right, if it falls just right. You know, we have a listener to the program who, uh, I was back in Washington, D.C. not very long ago, and he reached out and said, hey, um, you know, uh, big fan, I'd like to bring you a challenge coin from my organization. 
uh, do you want to meet on the steps of the Natural History Museum? And and I and I knew that he was in one of the secret services, so I understood that he had some kind of uh, clandestinity to his uh, to his kind of procedure. And so I sat there. It was a hot day. I sat there on the steps, and uh, here comes this guy out of the crowd. Seriously, I swear to God, wearing a three-piece suit and mirrored sunglasses. And he walks up, he he palms me a challenge coin, and he works clearly at a higher GS level. He's clearly one of the aliens that runs some uh, some yeah. element of our Air Force. He worked at ICE. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I understand why you're being so clandestine. He was like, I know, maybe you don't want this because it's, you know, because the organization is so tainted, but... You know, I'm, he, I'm I, can't, I can't give these away. I'm one of the good guys. And then he disappeared into the crowd. Is it your position that clandestinity is the noun form of clandestine? Clandestinity is the new form. Clandestiny? No, I am not your clandestine. Cl- clandensity? No, your clandestiny Clandestiness? Clandestininity is, is the new word. I, I'll stand by that. Uh, we also heard from Brian, uh, who wanted to set us straight on, we mentioned the Surgeon General of the United States, but... Since the plural is relevant here, he wants us to know that there are multiple surgeons general within the U.S. government because all three uh, divisions of the Department of Defense have their own surgeon general. His uncle, Brian's uncle, oh, is the really? has just been sworn in as the new surgeon general of the Air Force and the Space Force. Uh, and uh, his, his uncle is a pediatrician who is also a lieutenant general, I guess. <laughs> Uh-huh. And having he says, having just seen General Brown, the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff speak, I can confirm that the Space Force is definitely part of the Air Force and that there is more than one Surgeon General in the U.S. More than one? It's But there is there a— There's a Surgeon General of the Army, a Surgeon General of the Navy, and a Surgeon General of the Air Force. But there is a—those is a. Those are the Surgeons General, but is there not yes. the, the, the coop? The Surgeon General of the United States. Of he the was United the one who States. came up in the show, and he's the— uh, what he's the head of whatever the uniformed service of the of the commissioned civil health corps or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Uh, the uh, what is it called? Like the yeah, the the United States. I I got it right the first time I talked about it. Medicine I'm not going to be corps. troubled to get it right on the on the addenda. Health as well. health health corps. It's got the word health in it. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, and I, I had to look this up because I was confused. Wait, the Air Force, the Space Force is part of the Air Force? No, not anymore. Well, in fact, here's what happens. There, the Air Force can mean two things. Oh. There is the U.S. The Air Force and the Space Force are separate armed services, but they both fall under the same DOD department, which is the Department of the Air Force. Right. So it's like the Navy and the Marines. That's exactly right. Yes. The Department of the Navy includes the... Marines. So there's a secretary of the Air Force yes. that encompasses Space Force. And there is not a secretary of the Space Force. There is, but it's just a receptionist. Uh, I wish that it was called Space Force USA America. Uh, that's a much better title for it. It's a little long. Space Force USA America, can you, Ken. Can you fit it on a tail fin of something? Sure. Well, you know, you're making rockets, so the tail fins are bigger. Believe it or not, we are still going through Surgeon's General... Uh, uh, feedback here. The last one was from Michael, who wants to share his support with your opinion that there are too many titled uh, executives in the corporate world mm-hmm. now. Is he is he a uh, chief revenue officer or one of these other made up titles? He does not say what his 
possible C-suite position is, or maybe he just works with them and is annoyed. He's a vice president who hates them all. He pointed out that uh, he calls American corporate management a a never-ending pissing match. He points out something which I don't think I knew, which is that uh, this all goes back to companies having both a CEO and a CFO, which is actually a regulatory requirement. Oh, I did not know When you file with the SEC, there have to be two different persons attesting to the fidelity of the documents. And, you know, I guess for, it just seems twice as safe if there's a a, a chief guy and a financial guy watching over the chief guy. So why should there not also be a chief marketing officer, a chief chief snacks officer? He says that in most cases, uh, you know, this is partially just title inflation of everybody wanting a C by their name, but it's also in a case where there are multiple vice presidents in a certain wing of a company, if your company has different VPs over marketing, right? Different VPs over technology. That's when you need to, to have. It. That's when you need to have the head VP, and which should be that's an executive becomes, vice president. There you go. Yeah, that's what an executive vice president. Is. But instead, it becomes the chief marketing officer, right. the chief technology officer, the chief IT officer. You know, whatever it is. But the problem with that, I think, is if that if you get appointed. You know, if you get promoted to being the chief, uh, the chief marketing officer, you're not going to want to take a job after your startup collapses. You're not going to want to take another job for less than chief marketing officer status, right? You're not going to get a, you're not going to go back to being a vice president. And so there are all these like disconnected CMOs who are working out of WeWorks somewhere. They only ever, (laughs) they only ever worked at a company with 40 employees, but now they, you know, they have this sense of themselves that they're a GS 15. I have a friend from high school named Bruce who actually uh, got me my first job in tech once I graduated with my CS degree. And he was working for a startup and, you know, he's gotten to the point where he's now, CTO or equivalent in all these little companies he's worked at, but he still does not have a college diploma because he dropped out of school in the dot-com boom of the late 90s to become a CTO. (laughs) And now, you know, he he really does face the problem of, you know, there's just not enough CTO jobs for the high school diploma holder. Right. Um, Right. What are you going to do? You got to go back to college? like, Like you say, you can't go back. I've noticed, though, that if you, if you interview at Amazon... Like you've come from a 40-person startup and you were CMO there. You don't expect to get that job at Amazon yeah. where a CMO has 4,000 employees. There, so, should be, there should be a conversion table like, like the GS15 thing. Like what's the Amazon equivalent of being your, the CMO at your startup? In, I think it's Project Lead. <laughs> Entry 901.js1002. Certificate number 507. Boy, that's a low certificate number. Back in the day. Paris Syndrome. This really goes back. Uh, it does. Uh, we heard from a future Ling named Melissa. I guess in, a, in the previous Addenda show, we asked if any Omnibus listeners used this show as kind of an oblique strategies like creative uh, brainstorming tool. Oh, right. I had a thing I used to do where I would just, you open a page of the dictionary and, you know, there's those two guide words at the top of the page. Uh Like this page is uh, New York, New Yorkan, like Puerto Rican from New York to oatmeal. And so you would write a poem. That's a creative prompt right there. Write about uh, uh, Boricuas eating oatmeal or uh, 
what do we got here? Irreplaceability to island. Yeah. American chameleon to Amish. They kind of are the American chameleons. The yeah. Amish. I mean, this all feels though like you're doing a like a like a rap slam. <laughs> oh, like this is for my I have to freestyle now about, yeah. about Amish chameleons. Yeah. I'll do that. Okay. Can you can you lay down a beat for me? <laughs> Melissa is uh, a poet who recently this is not my freestyle about Melissa. She has a case of writer's block that she blames on the pandemic. Agreed. And she decides, you, you agree that she has writer's block? I, I do, and I agree <laughs> it's the pandemic's fault. She has decided she will write a poem a day using omnibus topics. Hey, hey. So she has spent much of the pandemic writing poems about Vesna Vulovich, raccoons, the monkey selfie, Duchenne smiles, the Toyota Hilux. Is she going to publish them in a book? That would be, wouldn't that be great? I think it would. What a great perk for listeners. We yeah. should... Uh, we should collaborate with Melissa on this. She wrote a poem about Sasquatch that ended up with the title Woods Porn. So I guess she's not bound to the title, the title of the entry being the title of the, uh, of the subsequent poem. But what a, great, what a great idea. What a flattering use to put uh, this dumb show to. We, sh- we should figure out, because this show is only uh, being listened to by uh, Patreon supporters, we should find a way to collaborate with her so that it is a Patreon perk. I, I agree. Poems. I agree. And, well, and help subsidize bound. poetry, which uh, no no other force in America will do today. Uh, she sent us one of the completed poems. Would you like to hear a poem on Paris Syndrome? Yes, please. A tourist under the Ariate Lily Dome of Sacre Coeur finds her mind kaleidoscoped as the rose window glass hmm. at the center of it burns the heart fantastically. On top of the Tour Eiffel, a man looks out over the field of war, the Seine gleaming thick and slow as Mercury as he creeps ever closer to the edge. La Pelle du Vide. Halfway up the bleached steps, corrugating the hillside of Montmartre, lovers pause to argue. Her feet blister, his frogged voice is lost. Later they will not recall why they might have fought there, where everything should be beautiful. It's very good. Yeah, they were fighting over whether or not to have kids. Thank you, Melissa. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 20. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.